This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show in partnership with the Compassionate Friends. I'm your host, Dr. Heidi Horsley, and I'm here with my co-host and mother, Dr. Gloria Horsley. Welcome to the show, Mom. Hi, hi. It's good to be on today. It's uh, pretty nice out here in California. I guess it's uh, pretty cold in your area. Well, we've got a really interesting guest today, and uh, because I'm uh, a nurse practitioner in psychiatry, and she is in uh, the nursing field also. She's a practitioner and pediatric nurse, and uh, so I'm going to be really interested to hear uh, from her. We're going to be talking about stillbirth and uh you know, Heidi and I got a big award from First Candle, didn't we, Hyde? Yes, we did, and it was it was an honor to get it because I think that uh, a stillbirth is a very unacknowledged and minimized loss, and so it'll be interesting to hear more today from our expert on this topic. Mm-hmm. And uh, First Candle is an organization that, that deals with um, stillbirth and pregnancy loss and uh, SIDS. So we got to know the director there and uh, and received this wonderful Marion Sokol Award for the work that we've done in this area. So let's go on with our guest today. Hyde, why don't you introduce her? Okay, Mom. And like you said, today we're going to be talking about finding hope after a stillbirth. And our guest today is Lindsay Wimmer. Lindsay Wimmer is the executive director of Star Legacy Foundation. She is a pediatric nurse practitioner a nursing professor at St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota, and a mom to three children at home and one son who was stillborn in 2004 at 30 week, 38 weeks gestation. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on today, Lindsay. Well, I, I just wondered, um, you had a stillbirth son, and were you a nurse practitioner at the time? I was. Oh my gosh, that must have been something because if you're in that field and you see it, and I know uh, I was working at the University of Rochester teaching at the nursing school there when my son was killed, and I thought I knew a whole bunch about it, and then it happened to me, and I'm like, wow, did you feel that way? Absolutely. I my my focus is in pediatrics, and so I, um, for the latter part of the pregnancy, I felt like I was more concerned about the infections that could happen, um, the um, Things like traumatic um, birth type type things, prematurity, things that are, are a lot more well known, and of course, even looking forward into some of the things that I knew I had to worry about once the baby was born. That this one really just kind of um, hit me out of the blue. I, I didn't realize the extent um, of the issue that there is, where healthy moms with healthy babies and healthy pregnancies could end in such a devastating way in, in today's day and age. And as a nurse practitioner, I, I was rather embarrassed for quite a while that I didn't know this and that I didn't realize how often it happened. But when I started getting into the research and, and looking a little bit more, I understood um, why that was. And it's because there is so very little awareness, research, education, um, and, and support for many of these families. So, Lindsay, how did your son die? Um, it's expected to be a umbilical cord accident. All the other testing and everything else that was completed was um, completely normal. The only thing abnormal was that he had an extremely long umbilical cord that was uh, wrapped around him in seven different places and in many wow. places very, so very did tight. He, did he die while you were delivering him or did he die before that? He died before that. 
um, one night, um, my husband and I were sitting on the couch watching the news, and we were laughing because my he was moving around like I had never felt before. It was wow. the most crazy movement. And looking back now, I think it was was not the cute movement that I thought it was mm-hmm. at the time. But it was so abnormal. It, it definitely caught our attention. And we went to bed that evening, and I woke up a few hours later with just a sense of doom. I knew something was wrong, but I could not put my finger on it. I still didn't really even have any symptoms, and it took me a little while to recognize that I hadn't felt him move in in a while, or certainly since I had been awake. And so my husband and I then went to the hospital to have things evaluated, and that's when we learned that um, his heart was no longer beating. Well, you know, Uh, I think this is really good for a lot of our listeners out there, because here you are, a pediatric nurse. You know a lot about you know, babies and, you know, having a baby, et cetera. And yet you didn't 100% know, you didn't know what was going on. Because I hear a lot of moms saying, I wish I had known or I should have known. And the reality is it's 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 hard to know these things, it sounds like, at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that that was one of the, the things that haunted me and probably still haunts me today is that I didn't didn't know so much that I should have done. And the other thing that I hear from women over and over, and, and I experienced it myself, is not not trusting our own instincts. Mm-hmm. Uh, those maternal instincts start even before the baby is in our arms, and we don't necessarily give ourselves credit for that. We also, you know, rely on on the the books and the information that we're giving, and that's all fantastic. But so much of it just comes from um, that that intuition, and things like if I had known that you know baby being active in a way that that was so unusual could could be a problem that. Who knows? I mean, I, I could probably play the what-if game all day, but, but it just makes you wonder. And I know certainly there are families that do have that abnormal um, t- you know, abnormal symptoms or abnormal behavior on, on part of the baby that, that is a signal to them that something is, is going on. The other thing that I um, you know, re- remember, too, is that when I woke up and I knew something was wrong, but when I opened up my all my books and I went through the checklist of you know, I didn't have a fever. I wasn't cramping. I wasn't bleeding. I, you know, all the you go down the little checklist of things that says to call your doctor if, and I didn't have any of those. And so it took me a couple of hours to convince myself that it it was worthy of calling the doctor, given my my concern, even though it wasn't something on the list. And it it came back to I I felt silly and I didn't want to bother my doctor at two o'clock in the morning for for something that they I hadn't been given permission. To, to call about. And when I talk to obstetricians and midwives now, they all, you know, they their hearts just sink when they hear those kinds of things because they say, I tell my patients to call me whenever. And I, I have to tell them, but that doesn't necessarily, our patients don't necessarily feel that, that empowered or they don't trust themselves. And we need to have better conversations about that because we, we don't um, value that intuition enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was thinking about the shame and guilt factor of losing a child. I have to tell you that I had a lot of shame and guilt. My son was killed in an automobile accident with someone else driving, but I still felt shame and guilt. I felt that I should have protected him, that I should have done something else. You know, as you said, the what-if game. So I think that's probably a pretty normal part of the grieving process for anybody who's lost a child. So I wanted to ask you, have you dealt with that? And what do you recommend to other people? Because I know a lot of people are feeling those kind of feelings. You know, I think you're exactly right that that's a huge 
um, part, and I'm I'm so terribly sorry for your loss. I I can't imagine um, other than what how it relates to my experience. But I know that for stillbirth mothers, it's it's a huge part of it, especially because it happens within inside of their body, and some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that guilt even is expressed by other people. Just this um, last week or so, I've been working with a family, and when people heard about their um, their story, the first comments were, "Well, what did you do wrong?" Mm-hmm. And that that's you know really perpetuates a lot of that that guilt and shame that that really traumatizes these families additionally for for a long time to come. For me, I think creating the awareness has been therapeutic for me, doing what mm-hmm. I can to let other people know. It took a long time for me to accept myself that I didn't do anything to cause this. I was very fortunate that my husband and my family were adamant and very um, very um, vocal about the fact that they never once blamed me or that they knew that I did everything I, I thought I absolutely could to, to protect my son. And just hearing it on a regular basis was was enormous. And then finally using that to to kind of create awareness and help educate others has been very therapeutic mm-hmm. for me. The only thing I really find that is overly helpful for um, other other mothers is just to keep reinforcing that we always do the absolute best that we can in the circumstances that we're under. And hindsight is always a very different situation. But we we can only control what we know in the moment, and and to um, know that we we did all that we can, we um, and to know that our child knows that we we mothered them in the very best way we knew how, and, the, and with all the resources that we had available to us, and that we would you know change it if we could, and having you know trying to just find a place of peace and comfort um, with that, but it's. As you know, it's very challenging and often just takes a lot of time. So it, it sounds like just just normalizing it, just normalizing it and, and letting people know they're not alone and these feelings are normal. And I've had two miscarriages and I certainly had a lot of guilt about what I did and did I have too many Diet Cokes or whatever. You know, you're, you go yep. through all these ridiculous questions. And like you said, at the end of the day, sometimes, you know, bad things happen to good people and we never know the reasons. So this and these narratives of having other people that have been there, it sounds like they're helpful. I think so. And, you know, especially when you talk about miscarriages are often we don't have an answer. And, you know, as many as two thirds of all stillbirths, we don't ever have any kind of an answer. And so those moms, especially, and the dads too, but especially for those moms that don't ever have a reason of what happened to their child, it's, it's very devastating. But I, I do think that that, that sense of community and knowing that, it's it's such a universal emotion uh, for for parents experiencing in you know these these types of losses mm-hmm. and normalizing it because we you know we all feel that way and we've lost absolutely such a precious thing. Well, can you talk about your Star Legacy Foundation and why you started it and when? Because mm-hmm. you have a fabulous website uh, for stillbirth. It's a beautiful site and such oh, thank a you. lot of information. It's really great and even. Uh, so many sites have information on stillbirth and that kind of thing, but you go on to talk about, um, you know, the first weeks and days and the first months after loss. You give such good information. Well, thank you. We we really didn't start out to to necessarily um, create an organization, so it's still kind of 
cracks me up um, a little bit when when I think back on this. But about six months after my son Garrett was stillborn, I came out of a little bit of a fog and decided that I wanted something more positive to come from this experience. And because I had by that time realized the lack of research around stillbirth and the education and I'm involved in that, I, I knew I wanted to to look into those areas primarily. I was fortunate and I received very, very good support. I didn't want to replicate what was what was being happened there, but I really saw the need in this research and area, um, research and education area. And we initially started just by having a small fundraiser in our son's name and would donate the money to researchers who were doing very, very good work, but are were kind of siloed all around the world and doing some other individual um, pieces. Yeah, so you were able to go out and take action right away, uh, which even after six months, which is a pretty short time, but um, you felt that need to do it in your setting, right? And you were able to do yeah, it because you were yeah. in that type of a setting. Right. And and I have to say, we you know, we started very small. The first several years was just simply um the the fundraising events and it, it grew many, many years later. I found uh, comfort in, in that growth as, as years went by because then I had had energy um and the and the strength in many in later years to, to do it a little bit more. But also um I feel like I realize the therapeutic value in it for me. Certainly, it's not a, a good approach for for everyone, but it was for me, and I was blessed with many, many, many um, volunteers and, and others, including our, our board and our medical advisory team and so many who kind of um, felt um, compelled to, to do some efforts in the same same type of efforts. And so we now have a, a much larger team that I'm so grateful for, and they've they've really kind of um, helped helped it it grow. That's that's pretty amazing. So, have you actually stayed in the area, the same area that you were in, in pediatric nurse? Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, my my work is still in pediatrics, um, but I've I've learned a lot more about obstetrics over the last um, eleven years for sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell people how they can find your website because, as I said, it's amazing and it's so complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it is www.starlegacyfoundation, all one word, .org. And, um, yeah, we're we're always welcome for, for suggestions. We try to be a, a source of information and, and education and support for people. And if there's something that you're looking for that you don't find there, please shoot us a note because – we we love to try to help people connect with some of the experts in different areas or try to help some of these families get answers if, if at all possible. So shoot us a note if, if there's anything we can do to try to help answer some of the questions you may have. Now, could you give a couple of pieces of advice to somebody who has had a stillbirth and early advice and then maybe a little uh, advice for down the road? Sure. I think it's a little bit different for everyone, but I think finding some way to incorporate the child into your life has been very healing for a lot of a lot of people. I think with any type of child loss, one of parents' biggest fears is that their child will be forgotten. And so sometimes it's little things that we can do to help us um, know that our child is, is still with us. And sometimes it's it's big things. Sometimes it's wearing a piece of jewelry. Sometimes it's knowing a, a particular symbol makes you think of, of that child. Um, so those kinds of things can be very powerful. And for stillbirth families, 
in particular because so many of them are still um, in childbearing ages and go on to have additional children. We have a lot of recommendations and things for the emotional care and the physical care of any of those subsequent pregnancies. And so certainly I would encourage um, people in that type of a situation to ask lots of questions and to reach out for support because it is uh, very different from from pregnancies um, previous to loss. And if I'm uh, a parent or uh, a, a friend or a sibling of someone who's had a pregnancy loss, what would you say to me? How can I help them? Again, I think recognizing that there's a, a fear that the child will be forgotten. So use the child's name. Ask about them. Let them tell their story if and when they're ready. And then, you know, some of it just kind of what we um, tend to recognize as normal um, responses to, to grief support as far as help them with what they can if they're older children, you know, offer to take them for ice cream to give the parents some time alone if they need to, or offer to make the meals or, um, you know, take the dog to the vet. Those those menial tasks that don't seem like a, a big deal, but can be very overwhelming and very taxing on a, a family that's in the acute stages of, of grief. As a um, becomes a little bit further out, I think just finding ways to remember that baby and remember that it's still a big part of their life, having another child or having, you know, any other kind of major life event does not necessarily make this go away. And I, I think even, that's a good know, point, Lindsay, because, you know, people, it's interesting because when people find out you've had a stillbirth or a miscarriage, they want to know if you have had other, gone on to have other children or how many children you have that are surviving. And it, it kind of minimizes the fact that you had a loss, I think, oftentimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know many, many families, myself included, that five years later, when you see the school bus come through the neighborhood, you still get that little twinge because you know there should be another five-year-old going off to kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And those types of milestones that you miss will will continue for, for a long time to come. I heard a story um, once that was so touching about a father who um, was walking his surviving daughter down the aisle, and it got to him that the maid of honor was not his other daughter. And so these are these are um, emotions and memories that stick with us the rest of our lives. It, and it, it, it is interesting you're saying this because my sisters and I decided we were all going to get pregnant together and have children together. And they have uh, sons that are 14 years old and nine nine days apart. And I have a daughter now. I adopted her years down the road, but that was my child. The child I was supposed, to, you know, was thought I was going to have was going to be the same age. So watching right. the fourteen-year-olds just is great, but it just kind of little as a little reminder, oftentimes. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I want to close the show by talking about husbands because you just mentioned a dad walking him down the aisle. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what they need and and what we can do for them. Right. You know, dads um, really do have, have a very different um, experience with a lot of these forms of pregnancy loss. And so because so much of it is the physical things that are happening with the mother and having to deliver or having to, um, you know, go through whatever kind of um, physical um, treatments are needed, so much of the attention is on mom. And while there's certainly an element um, that that's appropriate, we can't forget the dads. And often the dads are the ones that get asked, well, how is mom doing? And a lot of times they just need someone to say, how are you doing? And, and that gets overlooked a lot. 
sometimes depending on the scenario um, in these um, stillbirth um, or prematurity, early neonatal deaths, the dads are also fearful for mom's health because sometimes either as a cause or an effect, mom's health is in jeopardy. And so they are suddenly, you know, facing the, the fear of losing both mm. their child and their spouse or their right. partner. And and that's very, very traumatic and, and very scary and not a very lonely feeling for them as well. In the, the immediate days, a lot of times dads will find more comfort in finding things to do. So sometimes we see them taking on the role of making funeral arrangements or contacting um, funeral homes or contacting family, doing doing some of the tasks that that are appropriate. But um, we, we also know that at, at some time they need to be allowed to grieve themselves. And sometimes it's, it's really helpful for other dads to to reach out to them so that they know what, what's wrong oh, with the dads like to that. feel. Yeah, and and to, to give them an outlet because they, they feel so much responsibility for taking care of and supporting and protecting um, the mother that, that they don't take care of themselves as often. Yeah. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for being on the show today. I mean, you are an amazing person, and what you've gone on to do is just great. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate what you are doing for awareness. Thanks, Lindsay, and thank you for building awareness for such an unacknowledged and minimized loss. Thank you. Well, Heidi, uh, very interesting show. I mean, uh, the uh, Star Legacy Foundation is really, uh, really rich and a a wonderful site for people to go on, and I think Lindsay's given us a lot of good advice today, hasn't she? Absolutely. This This was a very important show, I think. Yeah, I agree. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening today. And Heidi and I always want to remind you, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own. And God bless. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.